This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I'm recording again today in Vancouver on the unceded land of the Coast Salish peoples, the Squamish, Musqueam, and tsleil You might today even hear some of the traffic and sirens outside in the bustling city as I conduct this interview. That's right, today's episode is an interview. I'm especially delighted and honored to have with me Wade Compton. He's a scholar, author, poet, and publisher. He's the author of a collection of nonfiction essays after Canaan, a graphic novel, The Blue Road, A Fable of Migration, published by Arbor Press in 2019, and a short story collection called The Outer Harbor, published in 2014. Compton is one of the three co-founders of Commodore Press with Karina Vernon and David Cheriandi, and he's the chair of creative writing at Douglas College. He's also the co-founder of the Hogan's Alley Memorial Project and an active social media presence who has been for Black History Month, that is all of February, educating the public through that means, which is presumably an extension of the Hogan's Alley Memorial Project. If you follow him on Twitter, and if you don't, I highly recommend that you do at at Wade Compton. You'll know that he's also been tweeting stories for Black History Month about people of African descent in Vancouver. My show notes will provide links to all of these references, I promise. Now, if you stick around after the interview is over, I've added the equivalent of an outtake from the interview, a segment I really wish I'd been able to include, but I saw of no reason to deprive my listeners of hearing this last little bit that Wade and I chatted about once the interview was over. It's just a little extra I've thrown in after the end of today's episode. So stick around. This is my interview with the magnificent writer and scholar, Wade Compton. Thank you for joining me today on Getting Lit with Linda. Thanks for having me I'd like to start with one of your more recent of your many, many endeavors, the tweets themselves, although I'm hopeful that we'll be able to speak about the other hats you wear. Um, some of the tweets, for those who've not yet had the opportunity to read them, are about figures like Eleanor Collins, the first Black woman in North America to host her own TV show in 1995. I have my own background in relation to working in archives, so the first question for me was, what kind of research did you have to do for this historical record? It's funny because I was saying to my partner, I think I've been doing this research and this kind of work for so long. It's mostly in my head. <laughs> I've just kind of absorbed it all over the last 20, 25 years of doing both literary history of Black writing in the province and kind of activist historian work, consciousness raising. And, and part of it is that people in the Black community are obviously, you know, very concerned with keeping the public memory of Black BC and Vancouver alive, but also people outside the community have been really helpful. Mm-hmm. So in the absence of the institutions that I think we need, like a Black cultural center or an archive or something like that, 
people have just centralized stuff with me often, right? So I'll just get random emails of people saying, I found these photographs. Uh, I don't know who it is, but it might be interesting to you. Or here's a piece of information about um, Grafton Taylor Brown or something like that. So a lot of info kind of comes my way from other people because I haven't really been actively researching um, lately. And, uh, and stuff still kind of comes in. So I, I think what that really speaks to is the, the lack of a kind of official, you know, history keeper or archive. So people are helpful, but it would be nicer if it was somebody's paid job to do this kind of thing full time. Often these things are volunteer. I find the gathering of papers and so forth. I find it interesting that people are reaching out to you and, and sending you materials. So does that mean that you're you have a an informal archive with you? Well, the funny thing is I'm not very good at keeping my own papers. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm obsessed with other people <laughs> documenting things and my own, my own stuff is a bit of a mess. But I have fi- you know, files on my computer. and Mostly it's informational. It's little bits and pieces of information that you know, people point, point you to. I guess I do have stuff. I mean, I, I, I need to go through it at one point. The funny thing about it is I, I've been refraining from giving my papers to anyone i was about to ask you about that yes yeah for years because you know what it was it was a conversation it was one of our our events i think it was actually a commodore books event Hmm. and grace Eichel thompson was there member of the japanese canadian community who was active with the japanese canadian center in burnaby she was very supportive of what we were doing, which was great and very sympathetic to the black community trying to centralize this information. But she took me aside at one point and said, you know what, you know, keep, keep your, you know, the fact that you're, cause I said something about how, if you go to the Vancouver city archives, it's really hard to find mm. uh, material on the black community. It's as if we don't exist. Whereas if I talk to friends or family friends, you know, they have all of, or, I mean, I, we went to, um, Velma Gibson's house once Mm -hmm. and the wall of her kitchen is an archive (laughs) of black of black BC because but it's all in family albums right it's like the families still have the material that their archives don't and I and I mentioned this and Grace said you know that feels like a bad thing but she's like maybe that's a good thing because if you get a community archive if you get a center like we have the Japanese Canadian Center then you can centralize all this stuff then and it can be in control of your community mm-hmm. whereas what happened with the japanese canadian community is yeah it was in archives before they got their center but then that's a problem because now the archive at the center is incomplete and there's bits and pieces at the that's true the bc, the BC provincial archives the vancouver city archives it's just here there and everywhere and then when they went to build their own you know it's starting uh, from a point where a lot of that stuff was already housed in other places so I've, that stuck with me so I've kind of been holding back but I don't know the the chance of us getting a black cultural center just is the, the ever receding fruit that, that Tantalus never quite gets a hold of so I don't know if we'll have a black cultural center ever at this point have you tried have you been invested in that kind of project then is that something that yeah you've... I mean we've been pushing for it for years and years um Mm. And uh, the Hogan's Alley Society right now, which is, I think of as the successor organization to the Hogan's Alley Memorial Project, they're the ones who are holding the city to the promise that they made. They actually voted 
for the Northeast False Creek Plan in 2017, 2018, 2018. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, which included a Black cultural center at the site of Hogan's Alley. Now, mm -hmm. unfortunately, the Vision Vancouver then lost the next election, and the new coalition council has just not said a word about whether or not they're going on ahead with the Northeast False Creek Plan, whether or not the viaducts are coming down, and whether or not our Black cultural center is there. As you were speaking about this, I was thinking about how all archives are fragmented, that I, I'd have to visit multiple archives in order to put together any kind of coherent narrative. And so I wonder if that perhaps speaks to the kind of experience of identity in this context. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's a self-fulfilling thing in a way, right? <laughs> in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Me and people at Peter Hudson were looking for, you know, evidence of black presence in BC. And I remember the feeling at the time was as if we were the first to ever do this. And I remember later mm -hmm. meeting Fred Booker, who's one of the writers who um, I anthologized in Bluesprint, an anthology of black BC writing. When I met Fred, he gave me some of his albums, like he recorded a bunch of albums in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And they were all about, you could see the evidence of the research that he had done about the same kind of figures. And I realized, oh, wow, in the 70s, he was doing that on his own, going to the archives, trying to find evidence of Black presence here. And then you kind of realize, oh, everybody, when there is no central archive, people take it upon themselves. It's very, very Black PC, this thing of it cycling through without people knowing about the previous generation having already done this. And there's a lack of continuity, right? The problem, I think, partly is that without having this material there, each generation that does do that feels like it's bankrupt. You know, you just feel like, oh, there's nothing in the city archives. It's a smattering of photographs of Joe Fortes and this and that, and not really having a way forward. So, but it's it's out there. I was just thinking that it's um it's a problem of cultural memory then right making sure that the cultural memory gets passed forward or passed on yeah if i think about it too hard that will literally keep me up nights that how much stuff gets lost because if it's in a family album it's so fragile as to where that those photos will end up mm. or you know as people are getting older like with hogan's alley we're we're at the end really now for um the lives of people who were mm -hmm. old enough to have been residents during the Hogan's Alley era, right? Now we're at the stage where the people who are around mm -hmm. were children during that era. It's getting to the point now where, you know, you see some photographs and I'm looking at it and there's a bunch of faces there and I'm like, will, are, is there anybody alive now who will know oh, the names of who's wow. in these photographs, right? So that kind of information can get lost really quickly. I was thinking that maybe it, it would be worth making multiple calls, but I'm sure you've already done that. And what else are you doing through Twitter, if not this kind of project? This project that, about the Daily Tweet seems to me to be tied to your previous work with Commodore Press. So I thought perhaps you could tell me and the listeners about the press, just reiterate uh, what inspired it, its inception and the kind of work it undertakes. Yeah, again, I think um, <clears throat> it comes out of, for me anyway, out of, out of blues print and collecting those black BC writers in that anthology and doing that primary research. 
and just realizing, you know, some of these authors are not really available to people. You know, you literally will have to go to the archive or go to special collections or something just to read it. Mm. And so that got me thinking about the need for a, a black literary press in Western Canada. And then uh, Glenn Lowry at the time, uh, we were teaching together and he suggested um, doing something through line books. And we did a we did a few, you know, we had a short run, but we did a, a few and got some books into print, which is nice. But it's closed down now, so it was a pretty brief project. Just being a publisher is hard. <laughs> it's very hard. <laughs> the publishing industry is much harder than than I think most people understand or appreciate, especially in a smaller country like this one. People think that the geographical expansiveness means that we have. A large audience, but we actually don't, especially when we're comparing it to, say, the United States. I still think the the fact that Commodore Press existed is already suggesting a kind of changing of the face of Canadian literature, if not its soul and its spirit, which also I think still needs transformation. Has it changed you doing this kind of work? Yeah, in the I mean, it did give me a new perspective on. Um, mm writing i think in that i say this to some of my students sometimes you know not to sound too cynical but what it showed me you know when you're a publisher it showed me that you know, a lot of people out there have uh, books they intend to write mm. or that they're writing and the far far fewer people have books that are written because <laughs> i quickly learned about all these great projects and ideas that people had and they're pitching to me and that and, and, I, and i quickly learned that all you need to say to make the communication stop is, okay, show me a finished, show me the manuscript. And people just disappear, right? Because, I mean, the lesson to my student, my creative writing students out of that is just finish stuff, learn how to finish it. And you've already beaten out 99% of your competition to get published because most people just are figuring out how to finish things and being able to to complete something is really what it's all about. And it probably, if you, I mean, if you can complete a collection of poems or short stories or a novel, it probably coheres because you've had enough, you've had enough faith in the project that you could see it through. And that, that's a, that's a victory of its own. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you're within striking distance of getting published then. You have published enough so that you could speak to this with, sufficient experience certainly I was thinking um, that when I was preparing for this interview how much not only how much you've written but the various genres in which you've worked that's not so common so a graphic novel and scholarly essays and short stories and 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 Um, so I was looking at your collection after Canaan which I love by the way Um, and so for the listeners that came out with Arsenal Press in 2010 I wanted to read um, two parts of the quotation, of a quotation rather, from your collection of essays in which you say this. First part, Western Canada may seem an unlikely place from which to write about Black culture and identity, a space with a relatively small population of African descent whose history has barely penetrated the national or international consciousness. Do you think that that still remains the case? I do. I mean, that. I think that's, <clears throat> those are the conditions out here, um, mm. you know, for the, 
for the black community. The same thing, like having doing that literary history and having that kind of long perspective, I can also see how things are better. More more writers are getting published now than mm-hmm. used to. I mean, for those for those folks who are writing, like like Fred Booker um, and Truman Green and people like that who are writing in the seventies, it was very hard to get published, and that's different now. You know, I think that there are kind of regularly um, books getting published by black authors in DC, so it's opened up to a certain extent, and then that's kind of gotten the word out to the rest of the country a little bit so some change not enough but some yeah i mean it's a it's funny the numbers i throw around that blow people's minds sometimes are you know we we know i feel like we know across the country about the cultural impact and legacy of um you know black cultural producers from nova scotia yes that that's that's taken up a rightful space in, in the public consciousness of this country. You know, when I was looking at numbers, like just census numbers and just figuring out conditions in BC, I was shocked to notice that, you know, the black population of Vancouver, just the city of Vancouver, mm-hmm. is bigger than the black population of the province of Nova Scotia. That's incredible. So we, 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 I think we feel like we're a really small community here. Um, and we are, but that's in percentage terms, right? One to two percent of the population is black in BC. That's small in percentage terms. In Nova Scotia, the black population is definitely bigger in percentage terms. But in real numbers, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of artists, a lot of writers, and a lot of potential artists and writers in our, our population. It's also different in that Nova Scotia has a deep history, it's a longer mm. history there and so that creates a certain kind of cultural cohesion and momentum and here things are very fragmented a lot of people come and go populations have been itinerant over the years and mm-hmm. it's different for sure but in terms of you know, there's a lot of black people in Vancouver actually we're just a completely integrated community and so rendered somewhat invisible by that it's interesting that you're leading right to the second part of the quotation, which is about the fact that it's not a homogeneous um, community either. So this is the second part. Um, even within the conceptual bounds of the African diaspora itself, I believe that looking to the margins rather than the center of the diaspora has a unique value, that there are things to be learned from owning and exploring oblique kinds of Blackness in the periphery, where there are fewer local expectations of what the Black experience ought to be, radical experiments of identity can be tried, and where the standard continental systems of anti-Black racism have been unevenly applied, new systems of thought against racism might be expected to emerge. It's great. I absolutely love this. A little bit later, you talk about diasporic master narratives, which I've never seen as a term bandied about before. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for our listeners. Well, it's funny because, yeah, I wrote that 12 years ago. <laughs> could you could you explain what you meant 12 years ago? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, the, the, what's funny about it is that I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I've got almost enough essays for another collection of essays. Oh, great. And uh, That's super. this summer, I'm going to hopefully form that into a manuscript. That's the plan. 
And one of the essays in this new collection is called Afrocentripetalism and Afroperipheralism. And so that, so I am still thinking about this stuff years and years later. Uh, in that essay, I developed this a little bit. So it is on my mind a bit lately. And it's not that different from what I was thinking then that, um, you know, those are the conditions in BC. I think in BC, we, you know, if you're black in BC, you look to other places for cues in terms of what blackness is. And that makes a certain amount of sense, right? But you can also look to here. You can also look to the history here or just look to <laughs> look at, at each other and see how the conditions are different because other places don't always constantly look to other you know, look outside their own community for the definition of themselves to a certain, at a certain point, you have to just kind of go, well, blackness here is this way. And if mm -hmm. you don't think it's authentic, well, then the mistake you're making is that you're not understanding this is a distinct region with a distinct history and a distinct population. And so, you know, yeah, it's not like there because it's here. Right. And I, I feel like we're reluctant to make that claim in BC for a variety of reasons, but I think, um, I think it's time to make that claim. So in this essay, what I look at, what I find useful is in this idea of Afro-peripheralism, for me, is, is when I started reading, um, you know, Black writers from places you don't expect Black people to be. So mm -hmm. Germany or um, Japan. When I was mm -hmm. in Taiwan... I was just reading an English language weekly in Taiwan and saw that there was a Black History Month celebration in Taipei. And I was like, wow, what is that like, you know? And so it's interesting looking at, you know, reading someone like Mei Aim, who's a, an Afro-German writer, and recognizing something, like thinking like, well, apart from the German, specifically the German context, the voice and the questions she's asking and the type of writing she's doing feels like it could have come out of British Columbia. Oh, and wow. I realize well, that's because, you know, she's also in a place where a lot of things are similar in terms of like a lot of the black populations mixed race because a lot of them descend from um, itinerant black men who came here, you know, for work or for with the military or whatever. And a lot of people who didn't grow up with very strong connections to the roots, um, without mm -hmm. a strong connection to a black community necessarily. So all these things are kind of in common uh, in these peripheral sites. And so I think it's one way to think about our part of the diaspora is rather than kind of going, well, connected up to the obvious black centers like you know mm -hmm. um, african-american mm -hmm. culture or the caribbean culture or the continent you know those connections are there right but you know another way to think about what are what's it like though right what is it actually like to be here in bc maybe it makes more sense to look at places like sweden or japan or australia like you know places where you don't expect black people to be but they're there and then kind of look at how they're navigating their relationship to those dominant societies. So you're talking about these different diasporas and the kinds of similarities that they that they may bear. But you said recently on Twitter that diasporas, plural, are full of diversity. So that is also true at the same time. 
that we can't assume that they'll all these diasporic formations will all operate in the same way or bear consistent resemblances. Yeah, and that's what I'm contrasting to, um, you know, di- black diasporic master narratives. And I think there are those there are certain narratives that take central place, and and that's fine. It, it, I have to be careful sometimes because I'm tr- I'm not saying like these are illegitimate or anything like that. But I'm just mm-hmm. saying that sometimes they don't fit in, for certain populations. And then there can be this weird kind of authenticity crisis or, you know, a regional crisis in a way where people, you know, don't see themselves or don't represent themselves in the way they're actually living. And so I think we have to be careful about that. Mm-hmm. Even something like, um, I mean, in Canada, you know, one of the central narratives here is of the Underground Railroad. That's true in central Canada, that that's a significant, important part of the story of Black Canadians. But then you have this whole other migration out here on the West Coast that comes from California for the gold rush. It's not the Underground Railroad. It's something different. You want to be careful not to just place one story over top of all the other stories that are here. Or on the prairies, right? There's that interesting migration that happens from Oklahoma up into Saskatchewan and Alberta, it's unique, you know, it's its own thing. And um, those things are important. Like those those memories, those parts of the diaspora are important and you know, deserve their own study. I couldn't agree more. What I'm, I find fascinating in what you're doing, what you're even saying now, is that you're speaking to the complexity of identity. And you do this consistently in in your various writerly forms. So I was thinking of your um, short story collection, The Outer Outer Harbor. In the first story, there's a a figure by the name of Riel, loosely named, but not really named after Louis Riel, which I thought was great and quite quirky. And at the end of the story, he is shoeless, without possessions. He's left his apartment He's escaped the kinds of narratives that are being imposed on him about fundamentalist Christianity, for example, or um, forms of hate speech or being a migrant. All of these narratives that are being imposed, he's he's run away from them. It was uh, wonderful because it kind of captured the multiplicity of identity, but also a moment of almost post-recognition. He's trying to escape all of those narratives that have been imposed upon him. Am I reading that story correctly how would you talk about it you're reading it correctly yeah that's how i think of it that story is funny because it's the first one in the collection but it's the first i wrote chronologically for that book so i wrote that first before Hmm. i knew i was writing a book of short stories and so i think that i did go back and edit it pretty substantially later but in it's it, it does feel like the rest of the stories come out of come out of that one or thematically right um and then the character too characters recur in that story but um yeah those issues the issues of space and the issues of you know jurisdiction and and the issues of um, identity and claiming and sort of also it's kind of it's a little bit of a a buildings not Roman, but a Bildung's short story. <laughs> it, it, he, it's partly also about him kind of growing up, I think, and, and mm-hmm. deciding he's going to 
kind of claim his own life, you know, on his own terms at the end. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the, the book looks to the future. And so part of it is set in the future and it goes up to 2025. And, uh, and the way that story ends is also looking to his future. And that was all very deliberate because I wrote that at, you know, while I was trying to stop doing all of the stuff we've been talking about, which is the historical <laughs> work. I was at that time I was supposedly quitting all of that. Um, and I very deliberately wanted to write something not set in the Holy Valley era and not really even talking about it, but looking to the future of the city. So, yeah. So, and that's sort of kind of on a micro level with that character, but then also the book itself moves towards kind of an alternate future for Vancouver. How does your creative writing inform or interrelate with other work that you've been doing? You mean like the historical kind of cultural activist work? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think they run parallel, or have done anyway. I, I think that in some ways, that I was saying this to, um, to a friend the other day, you know, I, part of the problem with writing with my kind of identity position mm. is I, it's, I know that people don't have the context. You know, and I can I, I can anticipate that critics won't understand the social or historical context I come from. And so I think I've I've had to sort of do my creative writing and then also do my critical work at the same time to kind of give people both so that so that they can interpret what I'm doing. And I see other writers do that. I think it's not unique to um me for sure and not not even unique to black writers in Canada but I think um, anybody where you can you know that people won't necessarily have the tools to read it unless you give them the tools to read it and because mm -hmm. you know, a lot of a lot of other writers do that who are doing experimental formal work that they're not that they need to back it up with the theory sometimes writers do that as well right um, exactly me it feels like it's cultural formal all of those things need context so i think that's why i've written you know so much criticism that's kind of related to what i do as well if that makes sense it does yeah it does what recommendations do you think you'd make to to listeners about what we should absolutely be reading right now oh i don't know that depends on who they are <laughs> <laughs> what they should be reading that they might not know about mm -hmm. well i don't know i mean if i'm talking to my students enough i often find myself encouraging them to read canadian books for one right because i think that's something first and second year students need to realize is that there's writing in their own backyard and publishing in their own backyard that they don't necessarily know so a lot of that that's what pushing they're often very surprised that there's this whole world of you know, literature that's right here but in terms of me i mean i i i don't know i read i have this weird habit where i read um different types of books at different times of the day so i'm always reading four books no kidding yeah, so i read poetry in the mornings non-fiction afternoons fiction in the evening Ch children's fiction before bed 
Why do you do? Why do you do I that? I think I, I don't know. I think I have some weird thing where if I'm reading one, one book, I, I get squirrely. I don't, I, I don't know. I can't uh, just read one book and then. So I, I, you know, I've always sort of read lots of books, but it was a while ago that I happened upon this method, and I just find for whatever reason I read more if I have the day divided up like that into different genres. Well, I like that suggestion in itself. If it means that we'll all read more, I'll take that as a map about how I should be reading. If that works for you, or just develop the way that works for you <laughs> so that you read more. And that was my interview with Wade Compton. If you'd like to know more about Wade Compton, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Wade Compton, or if you'd like to hear more about our episodes at L Litwith. Thanks for listening. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit. Like these tweets I'm doing, nobody's paying me to do this. Yes. And it was a hell of a lot of work because I did them all in December and January. They're all lined up. I'm not writing them to each day. So I wondered how you did. I should have asked you that. I was wondering if you had mapped it out well in advance. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I wrote the whole thing out. And then I've, I've tweaked it as I've uploaded things because, um, yeah, so I, I'd sort of edit it. So I wrote like a draft, I guess, essentially. And then just ahead of uploading one, mm-hmm. I kind of do a, a little edit of it sometimes. And how did you and decide? Then, I meant to ask you that. Okay. How did you decide what would be released on what day it's yeah it's roughly chronological because a lot of the tweets are specific people so i went mostly uh-huh. by their the year of birth but if you look at it closely you'll notice it doesn't always line up that way because some some figures are more associated with certain eras so i sometimes did that and some are just have weird lives like they the things they're famous for are later in life or earlier in life than others. And so it feels, it sometimes feels like it doesn't quite match up to the birth year. So sometimes I've jigged it around a little bit to make sense in a historical kind of scope. So I think if you look at them from the first to the last, you'll see a basic kind of uh, outline of the history of Blacks in Vancouver.